So we're beginning here on the top of Kuf Chatet Amad Aleph, 12 lines down. We left off yesterday with the discussion with regards to the tension between Chilul Shabbat, the necessity to keep Shabbat, versus Pikuach Nefesh, danger to one's life. And over there, the Gemara had different formulations as to what we do on behalf of a woman who's giving birth. And then the Gemara concluded with, we go like the person who is Mekil in the formulation here because of Safek Nefeshot Hakel. When it comes to issues or matters of life, there we are more cautious and we err on the side of doing the right thing in order to preserve life. And therefore, it's Safek Nefeshot Hakel. Rashi, in other places, says that it's based on Bitzilu Aida, that is the command to bait in to do whatever is possible to spare the life of an individual. And so too over here, we do whatever is possible to spare the life of the individual. The dispensation, as we saw in the Gemara yesterday, begins at the time the woman starts to give birth. And that will be the discussion in the Gemara today. When does that moment happen? What is the threshold by which we consider a woman to be giving birth that she then is granted that dispensation? We also saw that the dispensation with regards to a woman giving birth is broader than simply matters that are life and death for her, but things that are for her psychological well-being are also important and classified as pikuach nefesh, and therefore anything that will make her calmer or relax her or make it easier for her to give birth, all of those are included within the framework of what you're allowed to do on behalf of this chola, on behalf of this woman who is giving birth. There is a famous story with regards to Rab Chaim Ibris, famously known to be Mekil with regards to Chilul Shabbat when it comes to Pikuach Nefesh. And so Tim's family asked him, why are you always Mekil with regards to Chilul Shabbat when in many other areas of Aloha you always go to Hachmir? And so he answered them that I'm not Mekil in Chilul Shabbat, but rather I'm Machmir in Pikuach Nefesh. And so in this area also, I'm Machmir, I'm Machmir, when it comes to life-threatening issues, that we take the precautions and we do the proper things to save the person's life and to ensure that they are taken care of properly. So that's the beginning of the framework here. You have to know that there is a parallel Gemara in Yoma that deals with this as well, but over there it's dealing with fasting rather than with the, as Tosafot discussed yesterday, psychological issues of the women as well as any other matter that we're dealing with here. Over there the Gemara discusses what happens if there is a tension between the woman and the doctors, in general, we say that the doctors will trump, meaning that if they think she needs something and she says she doesn't, we will generally listen to the doctors because she may not be completely of sound mind now because of the pain and the trauma she's undergoing, and therefore we will be mechalel Shabbat based on the doctors. Vice versa, if she wants something and the doctor says she doesn't, there the poskim, the rishonim, deal with what we do in those situations, but generally in time periods or proximity to where the woman is in danger, we generally do listen to her. We try to placate her in a way that it will maintain her psychological well-being during that time of trauma. So now the Gemara asks, when does this all start? When does she get this status of a Yoledet or a Chaya, as the Gemara calls it over here, in order to be granted these dispensations? And that's what the Gemara says, When does the Kever, which is the Rechem, the womb, considered to be open so that she's granted those rights? Amar the moment she sits on the birthing stool or the birthing stone, that already is the time period where we assume that she's considered to be a chaya, and then all of these dispensations kick in. It's the time that the blood starts to flow and drip out of the woman. It's not clear here from the Gemara whether that is prior to the time that she sits on the birthing stone or stool, or afterwards, meaning that, is this the kula? I mean, it's an earlier time or a later time. Mishabura discusses this in the Bir Alocha, 
as to whether this is a larger kula or a bigger chumra. And some say it's when her friends have to help her, meaning that she's unable to walk on her own because she's already beginning to give birth. And therefore they have to help her, agafer, her wings, but her arms. They need to support her when she is walking. And if that's the case, that's already considered to be that she's in the birthing process. And as we said before, since this is safek bikuach nefesh, we go to hakel, that means that any one of these items, if she shows signs of any of these items, she's considered to have p'ticha tekever, and we will be mechalal shabbat on her behalf. Adma type p'ticha tekever. Until when does this status last? I mean, that's the beginning of the process of birthing. Until when does she have that status of a woman giving birth? For three days after the birth, she's granted that status of a woman giving birth, and then we are mechalel Shabbat for her. For seven days. And some say that is 30 days, as we're about to see now, that maybe they're not necessarily arguing, but speaking about different thresholds, which is Amar Nadai. The Nadai say Chaya, Gimel, Zayin, Velamid. A woman who gives birth, has different statuses as she moves through these time periods for the first three days after she gives birth, seven days after she gives birth, 30 days after she gives birth. These are natural cycles that we know from other areas of halacha, including getting married, sheva brachot, avelut. These are parts of those cycles that also have meaning in terms of milestones within people's lives. And so to over here, these are milestone periods of time. Gimel, from the time she gives birth until three days, Ben Amra Tzrichani, Ben Amra Lo Tzrichani, or the other gear says, Lo Amra Tzricha, he doesn't say that I need it, Mechalalina Leta Shabbat, or Mechalal Shabbat. So this is similar to the formulation that we saw yesterday, where we do this for her, whether she says she needs it, she doesn't say she needs it, whether she articulates or doesn't articulate it. If it's something that most women in that situation would need, we do it for her without even asking or without her asking for it, because this is the most dangerous period of time, this is when the Pikuach Nefesh is most apparent, and therefore we take care of her, Mechalel at the Shabbat, there any questions? Zayin, Amra, Srichani, Mechalel at the Shabbat, from the third day until the seventh day, if she says she needs something that requires Kalul Shabbat, then we're Mechalel Shabbat for her. Amra Lot, Srichani, Emechalel at the Shabbat. If she says I don't need anything, then we're not Mechalel Shabbat for her because she says she doesn't need it. Again, here, if the doctors say that she does need it, then we would generally listen to the doctors because we don't necessarily believe that she's a sound mind to say whether she does or doesn't need this particular item, and if it's something that the doctors feel is necessary, we generally listen to the doctors in Mechalel Shabbat. Lamed, from the seventh day until the thirtieth day, even if she says, I need it, then we're not Mechalel Shabbat for her, because we assume already at that time she's past the point of danger, and since she's past the point of danger, we're not Mechalel Shabbat, because we're only Mechalel Shabbat when it's Sakanat Nifashot, when there's a life-threatening issue, because Pikuach Nefesh is Doche Shabbat, but just being sick in general is not a threshold that allows you to be Mechalel Shabbat. But in that case, avalosim But you can't do it through a non-Jew. As Rashi says over here, you can do direct Amir Liakum. You can say something directly to the non-Jew to do on her behalf. Any needs or things that are necessary for the Chole can be done by a non-Jew b'Shabbat. It's similar to what Rav Nuna said, When there is no Sakana, then you say it to the Nachri, and he does it on their behalf. So as Rashi points out over here, that a woman in the first 30 days after birth has a Stam, default status of being a Chola, she'll be a Chola, that's not in danger or life-threatening danger, 
and therefore she has the right to have these things done for her, ayyadei nakhri, and that is with regards to Shabbat, we have different categories of individuals who are sick that allow for different dispensations. There's a choleh yesh bo sakana, a choleh or chola that has life-threatening problems. In that situation, as Rashi says over here, we don't wait for a non-Jew to come to do it, but rather Yisrael at that the Yisrael himself does it on their behalf. The Gemara in Yoma notes that it's important that the Gidolim and the Chachamim do the Chilol Shabbat to demonstrate to the people the importance of Chilol Shabbat for Pikuach Nefesh. So number one, it should be done by even the best or the, the biggest guns should do it in order to indicate to the Hamunam that that's the proper behavior in this situation. Number two is the Shokhanaruch says that the reason that we do that is because we don't want any delay in the tipul and the taking care of the individual. That leaves open a window which the Ramah notes that if there's no delay by having a non-Jew do it, then maybe you should ask a non-Jew to do it because if it's an option between Chilol Shabbat and no Chilol Shabbat, Maybe it's better to do no chilol Shabbat if you get the same outcome and with the same response time so that there's no delay. In general, we favor using the armai, using a non-Jew, when there is no delay or there's no degradation in the treatment that's being afforded to the individual. So that is a consideration when it will not take any delay or will not cause any problems to have a non-Jew do it. But absent that, a Jew does it. Or mechalo Shabbat when there's a chola sheyeshbo sakana. With regards to a chola that has sakanat aver, over there there is a machloket amongst the Rishonim. It's based on a girsa and the Tosafot as well as a meiri that was found later as to whether sakanat aver has a din like sakanat nefashot and therefore we would be mechalo Shabbat or do whatever we need to do for the individual. Or is that solely or uniquely associated with eyesight that the Gemara connects Sakanat Avers to Sakanat Aguf. And therefore that has ramifications with regards to things that are not Sakanat Haguf, Kulo, or the life-threatening, but they are limb-threatening. Then we have another category which the Gemara nends over here, which is Cholei Sakana, someone who's sick but is not life-threatening. In those situations, there are dispensations to violate Dine Derabanan, including Amir La'akum, which is asking a non-Jew to do a Isr Doraita on your behalf in order to treat or take care of the individual. And there a Jew can violate even a Dindra Bonan if there is Sakanat Aver. If there's not Sakanat Aver, then only through a Shinoi can they violate a Dindra Bonan on behalf of the Cholan Shainbo Sakana. And then there's something called the Michush Baalma, which is a person who doesn't have a sakana, no danger, not even that they're chula, they're not necessarily sick, and no fel de mitah, where they are now bedridden because of whatever sickness or whatever ailment that is plaguing them, but they have like a headache or something's bothering them. Over there, we have even less dispensations in terms of the individual. There we have some room to move because of the tsar or the pain that's ruining their oneg Shabbat, but we are less likely to allow you to violate dini the Rabbanan in terms of taking medication. Unless you're nofel mita, because the pain is so overwhelming. If that's not the case, then the only thing you can do is take items that healthy people would consume that also happen to have medical benefits to you, but you can't take medicine directly because you haven't reached that threshold by which we would allow you to violate that dindarabonon of taking medication on Shabbat. So there are these different strata of categories of severity by which if you rise in the severity, then we have bigger dispensations for you in order to take care of the Cholah on Shabbat. So here, with regards to the woman who's giving birth, in the first 
three days, she's definitely a bisakana, and therefore she, everything is allowed. From three to seven, if she needs it, or the doctors say she needs it, then she's bisakana, and we allow you to deal with it. From seven days to 30 days, then we assume she's a chola, she ain't both sakana, and therefore we use or we invoke Amir la'akum to allow you to treat the individual violating dine doraita, but using a non-Jew to do that, or possibly a Jew can do it to violate dine derabanan, depending on what type of din derabanan it is, and what ailment it is, and whether you need a shinoi in order to violate that din derabanan. This threshold of 30 days by a chaya, what's so important about it? I mean, if she's a chula, she ain't sakana, Yes, she has that default status until 30 days, so that is helpful up to 30 days. But even after that, if she's a cholash and sakana, she'd have the same status even after 30 days. So what is the threshold of 30 days important for? That's to say when she can go to the mikveh in order to be mitahar herself from the leda. So not like today where we're choshesh, when a woman has pichat kever that she's yoleted bezov, and therefore she can't get a tara because she doesn't have a cessation of dam until much later, and therefore she can never get shiva nikim in order to become tehorah. So it can take months afterwards for her to become tehorah. Back then they, they were not choshesh for that, and therefore... They had dam tohar, which means after a week for a male, after two weeks for a female, then any dam she sees after that would be dam tohar. And if she went to the mikveh, she'd be tohorah, both for taharot, as well as to her husband. The question that Rabbi Huda posed was, what is this 30-day threshold? And then Ardai indicated that it has to do with when's the earliest time she should go to the mikveh. That's only if her husband is not with her. If her husband's with her, then her husband can warm her up. What you see from Rabbi's statement is that the problem of going to the mikveh is that this woman is weakened by the birthing process. She's at risk. There are dangers. She goes to the mikveh, she will become cold from going into the cold water, the freezing cold water, or entering the mikveh, and if she's unable to warm herself up, that could be dangerous to her. So they say wait until 30 days where her body is sufficiently recovered, so that if she goes to the mikveh, it won't be detrimental to her. That might both be from the problem of open wounds, as well as the cold, as Rabba is noting over here. But if she has her husband with her who can warm her up, meaning that he can be together with her and keep her warm in bed, then she has a built-in heating element that will keep her warm, even if she's gone to the mikveh, and then it's not a problem. And brings the case of this, Kahad Brati de Rav Chista, like the daughter of Rav Chista, who was the wife of Rava, Tavla Begotlatin Yomen, she went to the mikveh within 30 days of giving birth, Shalobi Bala, when her husband was out of town, she became freezing cold, she was shivering from that, and they carried her on her bed, after Rava, where Rava was, in Pumpadita, you know, they took his wife to him in order to have him warm her up so that she would not be in danger. So you see from this that that threshold of 30 days is connected to the husband. If the husband's there, then the husband can't provide the warmth that the woman needs. If the husband's not there, then she should wait until after 30 days in order not to be in danger of getting cold or or weakness of her body being affected by going to the mikveh. You can make a large pyre, you can make a fire for a woman giving birth on Shabbat. We thought to say that this statement of Yehuda is in the chola lo. That's for a woman who gives birth, but not for a regular person who is sick. We thought that also would only apply to the winter time, not in the summertime. And the Gemara 
has one version here which is taken out of the Girsa, which is, that's not the case, it doesn't matter. Or, we have a new statement which does the same thing, which is, Itmar, he's dumb. The nitztanein, someone who let blood, nitztanein, and now they're cold, osim lo medura, afilu betukavlat kantamuz. You make for them a large pyre of fire in order to warm them up, even in the summertime, even in the hottest time of the year, you still make them for a fire. So you see from that statement that there isn't a limitation with regards to this. It doesn't matter what time of year, doesn't matter what type of choleh, irrespective of either of those factors, if they need it, and it's danger to their life, you can even do it on Shabbat in order to warm them up. Shmuel, Tzalchulei Taka Deshaga, they broke up for him a chair or a stool that was made out of teak wood, so that was something that was expensive, and yet they still broke it up in order to give him firewood to make a fire, to warm him up after he was given blood. Of Yehuda, Tzalchulei Petora Deyavna, they broke up for him a table that was made of juniper wood. Rashi says it's a type of cedar. And then he brings from his Rebbe that it is boish, which is, according to the Bach, I'd say brutim, or etzabok, which is beech wood. But it's a expensive table. And they didn't, again, have firewood. So they chopped up this table in order to make him firewood. The Rabu Tzalchulei Sharshifa. They broke up. As Rashi says here, it's a Safsal. Or the Aruch Rafraf, which is a stool or a footstool in order to him to have firewood to recover from the letting of his blood. Ramalei Abaye, who's a Talmud of Rabu, says to Rabu, Isn't this wasteful? You're taking these expensive items. You're taking these kilim, destroying them just to make a fire to warm up. The well-being and the health of my body is adifly, is more important to me. I mean that Baal Tashchit is with Kalim, but there's also Baal Tashchit with regard to one's health. And therefore you see from here in the Gemara that taking care of one's health is a dindo raita that has an isulav associated with it, not just an asay, which is that you have to take care of your well-being and your health and protect yourself, but also it's Baal Tashchit. You're not allowed to destroy. You're not allowed to do things that are detrimental to your health because it's a violation of here of Baal Tashchit. Rabbah says back to him that, yeah, here, Baal Tashchit of Kelim and Baal Tashchit of my gulf, my gulf takes precedence. And since over here there's a danger to my well-being or my health, if I don't get heat after I give blood, it's better to destroy this furniture and burn it in order to have the heat rather than to be at risk that I don't have the heat to keep my health after I've given blood. person should even sell the beams of his house, I guess the roof over his head would be the expression, in order to have shoes for his feet. Rashi explains over here, There's nothing more beneath the dignity embarrassing for an individual than to go barefoot in the shul. That's something that's considered to be unacceptable or something that shows the tremendous poverty that that person is suffering. And therefore, one should even sell the roof over their head in order to have shoes on their feet. Hekiz dam. A person who lets blood and has nothing to eat. He should sell the shoes off his feet in order to provide the means for a meal that he can have after he's given blood. And so what you see from here is how important it is to eat after one has given blood so that even the thing that is most important for you to spend your money on, which are shoes, you would sell those in order to provide for the means of a su'uda, a meal after you've given blood. 
What is the basic need of a suda? What do you need to eat after one has let blood? Rav Amar Basar. Rav says you got to eat meat. Shmuel Amar Yayin and Shmuel says wine. Rav Amar Basar. Rav says that meat is what you eat after you've given blood. Nafshah chalap nafshah. Because you've now given your blood, which is ki nefesh kol basar damahu or the comparison or the correlation between the dam of an individual and the nefesh. And so a person who gives blood is given up of their nefesh, so they in turn ingest or eat meat, which is the quote-unquote nefesh of the behemah, in order to replace the nefesh that they lost. You should drink red wine, because you lost blood that was red, so you want to replace it by drinking red wine. So you had a diminishment in the life force of the individual and you want to replace it. And we've seen before in the Gemara that eating of meat, the consumption of meat is considered to be something that's healthy, something that gives life force to the individual. And similarly, we saw that the Gemara also focuses on color. That if something is lost of a certain color, then replacing it with this colored item or a similar colored item should also help the individual. In their day, it was very popular to let blood. That was both for medical reasons, meaning that they thought there was health benefits to it, as well as the fact that people felt, quote-unquote, heavy, which means that they were lethargic. They also thought that letting blood was a way to lighten the individual's load, lighten the person, and therefore make them less lethargic. And so they did it both as a preventative measure and dealing with lethargy and other heaviness that they felt, as well as they used it for medical reasons. And so now the Gemara is going to speak in that context of the medical side of letting blood, what are the proper procedures and framework in which to do it. Shmuel, b'yom milta. Shmuel, on the day that he used to do, milta means this thing, or this word in the Gemara, it's a code word for letting blood. They used to make for him a dish made out of spleen, as Rashi says over here, the spleen is red, and so therefore you're eating both the basar and something that's red, and so therefore it was efficacious to eat after one had let blood. He used to drink, seemingly, wine, until the aroma of the wine used to exit his ear, meaning that he used to drink a ton after he had given blood. He used to drink until his spleen began to float. He used to drink so much until it exited from the cut that the blood letter had let, it started to exit from there. These are expressions or exaggerations that they used to eat or drink a lot. He used to look for wine that was three leaves. Rashi says that that means that it was aged three years. That its mother had already given for three years. But it already has three new leaves. Now, that could mean that the grapes that were used were grapes from the third year of the production of this vine. Or it could mean that the wine itself, as the Rashash suggests over here, aged for three years, meaning that the vine that you took it from aged or had three more years of growth after you already took the wine from here before you drink the wine. So that's aged for three years. Either way, you use this type of wine that had a certain potency to it, that was then helpful after you gave blood. 
So Rabbi Achmar Yitzchak says to Rabbanu, Matuto minaychu, I beg you, biyoma dahakozo, on the day that you give blood, amru lebitaychu, say to your wives, Nachman iklo legaban, Rav Nachman's coming to visit us. Now, he's suggesting that they say this because if Rav Nachman's coming to visit, they're going to set up a big meal, they're going to have plenty of food that's available and drink that's available because they're expecting a special guest. And even though he wasn't coming, they would do that and then they would be available for these individuals who let their blood and needed that seuda. So therefore, they were allowed to tell a white lie in order to have this food available for them. And that's what he says here. Any artifice or deception is improper. With exception of this deception that is permitted. And that is, what, number one, what he already just said, plus what he's about to say now, which is, someone who had their blood let, and he doesn't have the means by which to get the wine that he needs to drink afterwards, or the meal he needs afterwards. He should take a coin that Rashi claims is not accepted by anybody, meaning that's a worn-down coin that is not accepted by merchants anymore. Others suggest that it's accepted. It would be accepted in a difficult situation, but they normally would not accept it. He should go to seven different stores. At the time, until he's able to drink a revit worth of wine. And that he'll go into each store, and he'll get a taster implying that he's going to buy. Then he'll hand him the coin, and he'll say, oh, we don't accept that coin here. And then he'll have to move on, because they won't sell it to him. But in doing the tasters in all these seven stores, he will accumulate over that time the amount that he needs of Revi'etiyayin. And even though it's a deceptive practice, because you are leading the person into believing that you're going to purchase it, even though you can't or you're not going to purchase it, nevertheless, in this situation where it came to the issues of health, he allowed this form of deception, because technically... You do have the money to pay for it, but the chanut or the storekeeper is not going to accept the coin. It's a little easier according to those that say the coin would be accepted on the day of the chak. Rashi says it wouldn't be accepted at all. It really is a much bigger deception. But nevertheless, because there are serious health risks to this individual, he permitted arama, and the harama, or the deception, increased. In one case, he's just doing it with his own family, and it's his own money that's being spent. The other case, he's doing it with the storekeeper, so another person is affected by it as well. Now, it is only a taster. It is a small amount, but it's still, nevertheless, something that would be considered unacceptable had it not been for the health risks that were involved if he didn't do this, and that's why he permitted it, but he only permitted it in that situation and in no other situation. Bimlo, and if not, Lechel Shev Tavrei Uchmata, he should eat seven black dates, Belishov Mishcha A, and then he should anoint oil on his temples, Benigane Bishimsha, and then he should sit out in the sun to warm up. So all this drinking, eating, or the process that was just mentioned here are to warm the body because the body is weakened and becomes cold after the blood is drained or taken out of the individual. Ablat, which is the name of a non-Jewish individual, Ashkeh the Shmuel, the Gani B'Shimshah, he saw that Shmuel was laying out, resting in the sun. Amalei, Chakima, do you die? How could it be that the wise man of the Jews, Bisha, Miyavatava, the sun or the heat of the sun, which is detrimental to the individuals and the health of the individual, how could it be good? And why are you sitting out in the sun? Amalei, Yoma Da'akazahu. Says that it's a day that I gave blood, and therefore I needed to warm myself up, and therefore there is benefit, or it is beneficial to sit out in the sun. But that wasn't the truth, because there is one day a year where sitting out in the sun is beneficial. Yoma the Nafobait Kufat Tamuz is one version of it. The other one is Nafobait Kufat Tevet. It's either the winter solstice or the summer solstice. Sitting out in the sun on that day is beneficial. 
But he didn't want to disclose that. Whether he didn't want to disclose that because he didn't want to give away this good secret that he had that was beneficial to this non-Jewish individual, and therefore he kept it to himself, or whether he thought that it was somewhat problematic because it was something that was a skula, wasn't something that was medically or empirically good. So he said something, or he told them something that was empirically or medically clear, which is that if you go to give blood, then you need to warm up, and therefore the sun is beneficial. And he didn't want to tell him, he didn't want to reveal to him that he was really doing it for a different reason, which was this gula, this positive aspect of the sun, which comes about in the spiritual realm, when one is in the sun, whether it's on the summer solstice or the winter solstice, depending on the girsa that you have over here. Rav Shmuel, the Amrei Tavayo, call him Mekiel Besudat HaKazat, Dam. Anybody who doesn't take seriously eating after one has given blood or had blood taken from them, Mekiel Lo Mizunotav Minashamayim, then they also are reducing his parnosa, his ability to feed himself Minashamayim. Because it's a midah connected midah. Omrim, hu al-chayav lo chas. He doesn't worry about his own life when he goes through this procedure, which is somewhat dangerous, and you need to mitigate it by eating, and he doesn't take care of his himself. Salam. So Hashem says, why should I then care about him? If he doesn't care about himself, why should I care about him? So if he doesn't eat properly at that time in order to strengthen or take care of his body, Hashem says, I'll do the same. I won't take care of him as well, and therefore I will not provide his mizonot. Once again here, you see this idea of putting a premium on a person's health. And a person has to be careful about their health because the way that you treat your health is the same way that it will be reflected. Midah connected midah, Hashem will take care of your health. Rav Shmuel Damre Tarvayu, Haiman Ovid Milta, Loletev Hecha de Korech Zika. Person or individual who lets blood should not sit in a place where the wind can be felt or it's windy. Dilma Shafile Umna, because there's a possibility that the Uman, craftsman in the code words of the Gemara, is a bloodletter, someone who is an expert in these matters. Many times, as we'll see later, it also was connected with the barber or the cutting of one's hair, or the shaving of the hair, but he would let the blood, umukim le'a and he was careful to take a blood, but leave a revealed blood in the individual. Gemara believes that that's the minimum amount of blood that a person needs in order to survive. So he had taken out blood and left him just a sufficient amount to live. Batizika v'shayif mine. And then all of a sudden a wind will come and cause more blood to come out. Batile sakana. And now he'll be endangered because he's now continued to have blood letting from his body even after he's reached that threshold of a revealed left, which is base amount of blood that he needs in order to survive. Rashi notes that a person who has had blood let from them and left the revealed, they shouldn't sit in a place where there's turbulence where there is wind that comes around and swirls around, because it could cause more blood to be let from the individual, and that would endanger them. Shmuel Averogi Obavid Milta Bebeita, he used to, when he had his blood let, he would sit in a house, the Shav Levinya Baricha, in a house where the bricks, the layers of bricks, the width of the walls, was comprised of seven bricks, Levena is a full brick, Aricha is a half brick, I mean very thick walls, by which it stopped or stymied any wind from getting in there, and therefore he wasn't in danger but he used to do that, and as Rashi explains over here, that each brick is three fachim, and a half brick is one and a half fachim wide, where the thickness of the wall was sheva livanaya, seven bricks, barichaya is a half a brick, so it's seven layers times three is twenty-one, plus an arichaya, which is another one and a half fachim, it was twenty-two and a half fachim wide, the thickness of the wall, and therefore it was protective, it was a place that was shielded and a good place to give blood, yomachada avad v'ergish benafsheh, and one time he did let blood in there and he felt cold or he felt weak in, in this house. Madak, he checked, and he saw that one of the half brick layers was missing 
and therefore he was sensitive to the fact that then there was some air movement or lack of stillness in the air, and that was causing him to not feel well. A person who has blood let should first taste something, eat something, and then go out. Dilo because if he doesn't taste anything and then he just heads out, he bumps into a corpse, Yarkape, his face will turn green. If he bumps into a person who was a murderer, meat, then the individual at blood will die from seeing the murderer. If he bumps into a chazir, as Rashi explains over here, that's negative or has impact on him in terms of tzorat. And as Rashi claims over here, because the chazirim themselves carry or are infected with nigaim, as the Gemara in Kedushin says that Yud Kabim Negaim Yardud Olam, there were ten portions of Negaim that came down to the world and nine of them were given to the Chazirim. This relates to something that we discussed in the Gemara Nida and in other places that there is a belief in Chazal that the things that you see have a deep impact on the individual at crucial moments, whether that's B'Tashmish Amita or over here where the person is very weak after they've been giving blood. Here if they see a corpse or they see a murderer, it'll have a deep impact on the individual or seeing the chazir that is plagued with tzorat will be influential on the individual and cause them to suffer the fate of whatever those individuals are. Rav both say, After you've let blood, one should wait a little bit before quickly arising. There are five things that put you closer to death than life. And we'll enumerate them here. Achal v'amad, person who eats and then suddenly jumps up. Shata, someone drinks v'amad and suddenly jumps up. Yashen, someone who sleeps v'amad and suddenly jumps up. Hikizdam, someone who lets blood and then jumps up. Shishmei shmitato, someone engages in marital relations v'amad and suddenly jumps up. All those are negative or detrimental to the individual. And we see over here advice that is somewhat akin to what we do today with regards to giving blood. When a person donates blood today, there's a certain amount of weakness that they feel afterwards because of the giving of that blood or the donating of that blood. So they first ask the person to remain in the lying position to ensure that they're not lightheaded and that they can slowly recover from the giving of the blood. Then after they get up or rise from that, they tell them to drink something that's sugary, drink something and eat something in order to strengthen the body and ensure that they can move on and slowly allow their body to rebuild and they tell you not to engage in heavy exercise in other manners that would somehow affect the body because there is a weakening of the body. As you see, a similar type of advice that's being given over here with regards to someone who let blood that they need to eat, they need to drink, and they need to make sure that they don't jump up after they have let their blood. The interval of giving blood or a normal interval of giving blood is every 30 days. As he gets older, he should reduce it. As he gets even older, he should reduce it once again. Rashi explains over here, that is, the prakim are 20-year intervals. From the age of 20 to 40, he should have his blood let every 30 days. After he crosses over 40, from 40 to 60, he should cut it in half. Instead, he should do it once every 60 days. And then, once he reaches 60 and older, he should once again reduce it and do it once Every 90 days, instead of once every 30 or 60 days, he'll do it every 90 days. That's the way Rashi reads it. On the other hand, the Rabbeinu Hananel explains over here, which he quotes as a Mesorah from his Rebbeim, which is that the maximum amount of times a person should let blood when they are young is once every 30 days. Ben Aprakim, according to him, is when you reach the age of 50, you should start reducing that interval. 
and that you should do it every two or three months at maximum. After that point in time, which he doesn't give a threshold, but at further advanced age from there, then he should reduce it again and do it once every six months or once a year. And as the person weakens, he needs to do this less and less because of the weakening effect on the individual, the ability of the body to reproduce or replenish the blood that's there. And that's true today as well when a person donates blood that the intervals that we say for younger people, they can have shorter intervals. For people who are older, they have larger intervals. In different countries, the thresholds are 60 days or 90 days in terms of donating blood. So it's a similar type of interval in terms of the body's ability to replenish and return to its former strength before you take it away. And again, as a person gets older, it becomes harder and harder for that replenishment or that weakness is more impactful. And therefore, you would do it less and less or be more reluctant to take blood or let blood in those situations. In addition, Shmuel tells us that the times to have blood led are Chad B'Shabto, Arba, Umali Shabto. It's to do it either on Sunday, Wednesday, or Friday. But on Mondays and Thursdays, that's not a good time to let blood. Someone who has lots of merits, has great yichus, he can give blood on a Monday and Thursday, meaning that it's very dangerous to give blood on a Monday and Thursday. And the Bible explains why. Because whenever the courts down below sit to adjudicate, so do the, the heavenly courts sit to adjudicate. And as Rashi notes over here, from the time of Ezra and onward, he instituted that the courts would sit every Monday and Thursday, the days of the Shuk. They would also have the courts be open so people could come to court when they were coming to the Shuk. And therefore, Monday and Thursday is the Din days down below, meaning in the earthly courts. And that is reflected with a Din in the heavenly courts. And Rashi over here makes a note that this seemingly is according to the one who says, Adam nidon yom. A person is judged every day. It's a machloket in the Gemara and Rosh Hashanah as to whether a person is judged on Rosh Hashanah. Or a person is judged every day. It seems to be Rashi here is leaning towards that opinion that a person is judged every day. And since the Bati Dinim sit on Mondays and Thursdays from the Takanat Ezra and onward, and it's a day where they have Yom Adinu Pidahi Karim. So since that's a Yom Adin, then a Kosh Baruch Hu looks into the matters. If you're ready up for judgment or issues of judgment, then Hashem takes a look to see whether you're really meritorious or not. And if you put yourself into a position of vulnerability, it's risky when there's judgment going on because they could come out negatively in the judgment. You don't want to take risks at a time where you are vulnerable. Now, Tosavot points out, well, before Takanat Ezra, when the Bati Dinim used to sit every day, then when could you ever let blood? He says, even before the time of Ezra, they didn't sit every day. They sat when it was necessary. So it wasn't that there was any day that was kavua to sit, or they weren't there every single day, they came or they opened up when there was necessity. Therefore, there was no particular day, and that's why before that, Takanai wasn't an issue, but since Takanai Ezra, Monday and Thursdays are more dangerous days, and for that reason, we have the long Tachanun, and we ask for more Rachamim on Mondays and Thursdays, as well as the fact that you should avoid these more dangerous activities on Mondays and Thursdays. So then, why can't you give it on Tuesday? Explain to me why you can't give on Monday and Thursday. You said the days you can't give are Sunday, Wednesday, and Friday. What about Tuesday? Why can't you give on Tuesday? So he says, Because on that day, Ma'adim, which is Mars, is Bezuge, is on a even number. So therefore, it's doubly dangerous. This relates to a Gemara that we saw back at the end of Gemara Brachot. And I will send out a chart that will make it easier for you to see so you can follow along what I'm saying here. But the Gemara over there, and Rashi explains there as well as over here, 
that there are seven planetary bodies that are considered to be connected with a particular hour of the day, and they move every seven hours. They go through their cycle. There are two acronyms that Rashi notes over here. One is Katsnash Chalam, which is the order of these items at the beginning of the nighttime, meaning the beginning of the Allahic day. And then there's Chalam Katsnash, which is the acronym for how they associate with the beginning of sunrise on a particular day, the first hour of the day, which one of these mazalot is, as they call here, sholet, has its power or its time period. And so that is actually how we get the names of our days of the week. And we went through this when we did in the Gemara and Brachot, that the Chalam Katznash stands for Chama, which is the first day of the week is Sunday. Then Livana is the second one, which is Monday, which is moon or Lundi, lunar. Madim, which is what we're speaking about over here, which is Mardi in French or Tuesday or the Nordic gods. Madim is Mars. Then Wednesday is Kochav, which is Mercury or Mechlidi in France. Sedek is on Thursday, which is Judy or Jupiter. Noga is on Friday, which is Vendredi or Venus. And Shabtai is on Shabbat, which is Saturday or from Saturn. That's actually what determines the names of the week. And so what the Gemara is pointing out over here is that Tuesday, Ma'adim is the one that is Sholet at the beginning of the day, the first hour of the day. So it's Ma'adim's day. And Ma'adim, Mars, as we're going to see later on in the Masechta, the end of Masechta, the Mars, which is the red planet, is associated with blood, with death, with Cherev, Dever, Puraniot, negative things. And the Gemara will say later on also about professions that are involved with bloodletting are also associated with Mars. And that is the constellation or Mazal of Mars. On Tuesday, it's Sholet in the first hour. In addition, the Gemara in our Vape Sachim, the last parak of Sachim, speaks about this issue that is really only found in the Talmud Bavli, not in the Yushalmi, an issue of Zugot, which is that there are dangers with even numbers because the Shedim, the demons, survive or thrive on things that are of even numbers. And therefore, we try to do things in odd numbers or odd manners. So when you have a coalescing, a union of Mars, which is this negative planet because of the redness, that is associated with an even number, those two things together make it dangerous. And as it turns out, that Ma'adim, when it's the first hour of the day on Tuesday, that means that the next time it appears, because there's seven of these planetary objects that are cycling through every seven hours, then when you reach the eighth hour of the day, which is an even number, Ma'adim will be in that eighth hour. So then you have a union of, or coalescing of, an even number with Ma'adim with Mars, and therefore it's a very negative item. So that makes it a dangerous day to let blood because of that negative association with an even number and Ma'adim together. We'll defer discussing the issue of Zugot until Arve Psachim, which we'll try to discuss it more about what the origins of it are, why we don't necessarily worry about it today, and try to get some understanding of it. So we'll defer that discussion to then. But that is why we exclude, or we say that Tuesday is not a great day to do it. So the Gemara says, wait a minute, then male shabtanami kaim Also on Friday, it turns out to be on an even number, because ma'adim falls out then on the sixth hour of the day on Friday. That means you have an even hour on the day where ma'adim is sholate, and so it's also be problematic on Friday. So the says, came into dashu be'rabim, since the public at large has decided that that's okay to do it, shomer p'tayim Hashem, Hashem watches over those that are foolish. 
So as Rashi explains over here, this had to do with their poverty. It's a situation that we see raised in the Rishonim many times, and then in the halachic literature, which is that they did many things on Friday because of the Sudat Shabbat. They're already investing money to eat a bigger Sudat Shabbat, or to have a better Sudat Shabbat. So many times they would double up with some other simcha, to use that Sudat Shabbat as a Sudat for something else as well. So in this instance, they would use the Sudat Shabbat also as a Sudat that you need after you let blood because you need a bigger Sudat. So if you did on Arab Shabbat, you would be able then to kill two birds with one stone. You'd be able to both eat a meal for Shabbat, which would be a bigger meal, and eat a bigger meal that you need for letting of blood. They also used to do weddings on Arab Shabbat because of that reason, so that the wedding meal would be the Shabbat night meal. And again, they didn't have the means or the ability to have so many big meals and celebrations. They were clearly impoverished, and therefore they tried to use Friday as a day for doing many things where they could use the Shabbat meal. And as the Rashi says, They were under extreme poverty because of the difficulties. They used to try to do it as close as possible to Shabbat. So even though it is a dangerous thing, came into Dashu Beirabim, since the general public has decided that they're going to ignore the danger associated with it, then for Shomer Ptayim Hashem, Hashem protects based on that. The Gemara invokes this principle also in Yavamot with regards to certain women, it would be dangerous for them to come pregnant, and yet the Chachamim say that they don't Mishameshet Bemoch, they don't use some sort of birth control to protect themselves, as well as with associated with the Brit Milah, doing it on certain days, the problems and the dangers involved. In all of these cases, Gemara says, came into Dashu Beirabim, since the public at large has decided that they're going to do this or ignore the dangers. Shomer b'tayim Hashem. Hashem guards or takes care or secures those that are foolish. The question is, when do you invoke this principle of Moshe Feinstein? Before, I think he really understood the issues of smoking, invokes this principle with regards to smoking. Even though there's danger in smoking, he says, Shomer b'tayim Hashem, because everybody does it, and therefore Hashem will protect them. I think that was before he was aware of the real medical problems and detriments to the health of an individual from smoking, where it was not just a Dashu Bey Rabim Hashem, where there was real damage that was done to the individual. I think it had it been explained to him in that way, he would have had a very different outcome, like many of the Gdolim after him. But over here, we have what needs to be a balance between certain amount of risks that people undertake, as well as the ability to protect oneself from danger and from things that are problematic for your health. Rav Hanan Wasserman in the Kovetz Arot tries to bring a balance between these things and says that when you engage in activities that everybody engages in, which are normal activities, even though they involve risk, that's when we invoke the principle of Kenavim Dadashu Bay Rabim or Shomer B'tayim Hashem. Whereas when you engage in activities that are inherently risky, that either are not necessary, or there are things that can easily be prevented, or things that you don't need to engage in that risk and still be able to conduct yourself in a normal manner, those are things where we say that you have an obligation to take care of yourself, an obligation to protect yourself against these problems, and therefore you cannot engage in these activities or they are problematic. So the examples that I give all the time are to drive in a car, getting into a car, or getting on a plane are dangerous activities. There are people, unfortunately, that die from fatalities from crashes, both in plane crashes and in car crashes. But again, it's considered to be a normal activity. Everybody goes, it's a part of the normal life, it's an activity undertaken by people in the normal courses of their life. And therefore, in those situations, we don't say, don't get into a car. We say, came into Dashu Beirabim, that's the way that people in general conduct their lives. 
In the day of the Chachamim, they did it with animals, and there was danger that an animal could gore you or could hurt you. But nevertheless, since this was the normal activity and the normal way that people conduct themselves, there we invoke the principle of Shomer Petayim Hashem. Now they had to get into a car and not put on a seatbelt, or to get onto a plane and not follow the procedures or safety precautions. That's something that is not necessary, and it's something that can easily be prevented from undertaking that risk without impairing the person's ability to do what they want to do. Similar to getting on a bike without a helmet. A person who gets on a bike can ride a bike, even though they're dangerous with riding a bike, assuming they do it in a safe manner, because it's normal activity that people engage in. It's not something that is extraordinary in its risk that's being undertaken. But then to ride a bike without a helmet, that is something where the risks are clear that you endanger your life significantly, and there's no impairment by wearing a helmet that can give you all that safety and that protection without having to do anything extra. So again, you have to find that balance between them, and that's what the Gemara says over here, that the, the world at large has decided that it's important for them to do it because of their financial situation, to do bloodletting on Friday so that they can partake or take advantage of the Shabbat meal. That makes it that Kedashu Bey Rabim. That's a normal risk that's now undertaken by people. If it's a normal risk, you can also undertake that normal risk. And then we invoke the principle of Shomer P'tayim Hashem. And therefore, people give blood or let blood on Fridays, despite the fact that there is Madim found on an even number on that day. And even though, as Rashi points out, there are other instances where you have an even hour and Madim falling out, but those are at nighttime. And at nighttime, people don't let blood. So they're not impactful in terms of it being a negative day for one to engage in letting blood. Tosafot also adds that the fact that late on Wednesday, there is an even hour that coincides with Madim, but it's so late in the day that people aren't going to let blood so close to nightfall. Amar Shmuel, Dalit to Hudalit, a Wednesday that falls out on the 4th of the month. Dalit to Arbesar, if you have a Wednesday that falls out on the 14th of the month, Dalit to Esrim Arba, or a Wednesday that falls out on the 24th of the month, then all those are days where one should not let blood. Dalit to Leka Arba Batrei, and a Wednesday which has less than four days left to the month. That's one explanation that Rashi brings. Sakanto, all of those are dangerous days on which to let blood or give blood, and one should avoid giving blood or letting blood on those days. Rashi brings the second interpretation is that it's a Wednesday that has no other Wednesday remaining in the month. Rashi rejects that explanation, and Tulsa explains why he rejects that explanation, is because Wednesday that falls out on the 24th is a situation where you will not have another Wednesday left in the month. So that's the equivalent of saying that. If you did it on a Wednesday, which has no Wednesdays left in the month, it's equivalent to doing it on the 24th. Truth is, it does depend on how long the month is. But either way, they reject that alternate explanation. Rosh Chodesh, Vesheni Lo, the first day of the month, and the second day of the month, Chusha, is a days where a person is weak and should not engage in this activity. Shlishi lo, on the third day of the month, Sakana. It's dangerous to let blood or give blood on those days. Male Yom Tova Chusha. On every Yom Tov, it is weakening or it's not beneficial to give blood on those days. Male Yom Datserta Sakanta. On Erev Shavuot, then it's dangerous, life-threatening to let blood on those days. And the Chachamim were gozer, every other Arab Yom Tov, because of Arab Shavuot, and that's why they say Chusha by the other days, because they are not necessarily dangerous, but they don't want people doing it, because they don't want them doing it on Arab Shavuot. What's the problem on Arab Shavuot? The Nafik Be Zika, Ushmei Tavuach, because a wind that comes out that is called Tavuach, the slaughtering wind. It would have slaughtered them. It would have taken their basar, their flesh, and their blood. 
meaning that it's a day that is at risk. It was the day, as we saw earlier in the Masech, the back on Pechet, that Yom Hashishi, that Hashem was waiting till the 6th of Sivan to see if Bnei Yisrael would accept the Torah. If they accepted the Torah, fine. If not, then he was going to machzir Masebreshit, the Tovavo, or when he holds the har over them and says, if you accept the Torah, fine. If not, this is going to be your burial place. So it's a day of tavoach or riskiness. It's interesting to note that Chazal termed the day after Shavuot as Yom HaTavoach, the day of Shechita, because it was the day that they brought korbanot of Shavuot that are Doche Yom Tov, but are not Doche Shabbat. So Shavuot fell on Shabbat, Sunday was known as Yom HaTavoach, which over there has to do with the Shechita of the korbanot. but it's interesting to note that the same terminology is used over here. The Mishnah explains that the Tavoach was not a wind, but rather a shade, a demon that would have come and killed B'nai Israel. Either way, because of the danger associated with that day, it's an inauspicious day, to let blood because of the quote-unquote danger or the nature of such a day, and therefore one should avoid letting blood on that day because of the danger involved. Amr Shmuel, Achal Chita Vekizdam, someone who eats wheat or flour or bread, Lo Hikiz, Elo Tachita, then if they let the blood, they're only letting out that which he just ate. Meaning that once a person ingests food, especially heavy items or carbohydrates and starches, they make a person feel heavy and tired. And so then when you let blood afterwards, all you've done is remove that heaviness associated with that eating. But it doesn't then have any efficaciousness with regards to your general health. That's only if you're doing it for medicinal purposes. But it's lightening you, then it does lighten you. It does make you feel less lethargic, even if you do it after you've eaten. Person who lets blood should drink immediately afterwards. Achila ad you should eat within a half a meal, which is roughly nine minutes after you've let blood. Once you drink, you should drink immediately, but after that it's detrimental. Or maybe afterwards it, it's not detrimental, it's not efficacious. Take it, we don't know. You should eat until a meal. That's beneficial. Before then or after then, kashi is detrimental. may makes no difference. It's not detrimental. It's not efficacious. Once again, it's an unresolved issue. So now the Gemara continues. Rav used to announce, If you can buy 100 gourds for a zuz, then maybe you should buy them. If you can buy a hundred heads of animals for a zuz, then maybe you should buy them. If you can buy a hundred, maybe mustaches, lips, Below Klum, they're not worth buying no matter what the price is. Rashi claims over here that the problem with these items are that these are not healthy items. These aren't things that are efficacious in terms of both their health benefits and seemingly in the context that we're speaking about over here, they're not helpful after one has let blood. These are not going to help the individual to have a suda on these items. So only if they are super cheap and you get tons of them, maybe then it's worthwhile expending the money to use them. But otherwise, they're not worthwhile to invest in. And certain of these items are not worth it at all. On the other hand, the Rebbeinu Hananel has an alternative view here in terms of what this means. He says, Meir Reshe is talking about the barber. The barber cuts a hundred heads for a zuz. Now, the question is whether that means each person pays him a zuz, or he cuts a hundred people's hair and gets a zuz. And then on top of that, Meir Karne is the girsa that he has over here. Not the gourds, but Karne, meaning horns. Horns were the tool of trade for the bloodletters. So the hundred bloodlettings, bezuz, is worth a zuz, but svamo, when it comes to trimming the mustache and the beard, below klum, you don't get paid for that. So what the Rabbeinu Hanano explains over here is that you pay for the haircut, so you pay for the shave and the haircut, 
you pay for the bloodletting, but as a, a side or as a benefit for paying for those services, you get the trim of the mustache and the beard that comes with it. And so therefore, the person who works or does this for a living, he will get paid for the bloodletting, he will get paid for the cutting of the hair, but he will not get paid for the trimming of the mustache and the beard. Again here, that was what we saw earlier, that there was an association between the barber and the bloodletter. It seems to be that since they worked with knives and they used sharp instruments, that a person got their hair cut and their bloodlet simultaneously, or the same individual was the uman that practiced these things, and therefore, it's a package deal that comes along. Rav Yosef says, when I was at Bey Ravuna, it was a day that it was a day that the Rabbanan were either lazy or they were weak. They weren't able to review their Gemara or their learning. It was a day that was not so productive in the Beit Midrash. Amre, so Rabbuna said about this, This is the mustache day. I didn't know what they meant. Obviously, it's a reference to what Rav had said about that when you have a hundred mustaches, it's not worth, according to the way Rashi explains it, it's not worth a penny, meaning that it's a worthless day or a lost day to learning because it's not productive in any way, or according to the way that the Rabbeinu Kanano explained it, it's a day where the individual works, but he doesn't get paid because this is thrown in. It's a day when he cuts the beard, trims the beards and the mustaches, but he doesn't get paid for that because it comes along with the package deal with the other items. So that's what he meant here. Yom de Mefagre Bey Rabbonon, a day that they were lax, a days ago, they were weak. It was a day that was not so productive. He called it a Yom Adesfame, which Rav Yosef didn't understand what it meant, but the Gemara is bringing in the context of what Rav said, because that's obviously the reference Rav Huna was making to his Rebbe Rav's statement that Yom Adesfame meant something that is worthless or something that is not productive in any way. Right, Vikoshrim Ha-Tibur, it says in the Mishnah, that one of the things that you're allowed to do on Shabbat, Shabbat for the birth of baby, is to tie the umbilical cord. So Tanabanan, we have a bright uh, similar to what we saw in the Mishnah, Koshrima Tibur, you're allowed to tie the umbilical cord, Rabbi Yosumer, Afkotchim, you're allowed to cut it, Vitomnim Hashaliyah, Kedeshiacham Vlad. And then you bury the placenta in order to warm the Vlad. So in the Meiri, he brings this is seemingly a skula based on the Gemara in Yushami that says that there was a practice or a minog to bury the placenta after the birth of the baby. And it was seen as being a beneficial to the baby. Here it's saying to warm up the baby. The way that Yushami seems to indicate is because the Torah tells us that a person comes from the afar, vela afar tashuv, and then returns to the dust of the earth. So this is a pikadon. This is as if you're giving a deposit for that which in the future the person will turn to Afar Yeshu. So you placate the earth by giving them a picadon now so that the baby can survive or can live now. That was the concept behind the burying of this shilya. Obviously on Shabbat you can't bury because you can't dig into the ground. So what they used to do is, I remember Shimon the princesses used to submerge the shilya, the placenta, into vessels containing oil. Benot Shirim, the wealthy women who were not princesses, Bisfogim Shel Tzemer, they used to put it into sponges of wool. Benot Bemuchin, and the poor women used to put it into their worn-down clothing rags that were soft. And then they would keep it there until after Shabbat, and after Shabbat they would bury it. So they were able to keep up this practice without actually literally burying it on Shabbat for the benefit of the Vlad. And this is seen to be efficacious enough that we allow them to do this even on Shabbat, 
Again, here there's no violation of Shabbat because you're not digging into the ground, but still the fact that we allow you to engage in the activity because they see it as being beneficial to the warmth or the survivability of the baby. And not only can you tie the umbilical cord, but you're allowed to sever the umbilical cord so that the placenta does not remain attached to the baby. If you have twins that are born, they agree to Rabbi Yossi that you cut it, that you sever the umbilical cords, because if you don't sever the umbilical cords, if they're attached to a single placenta or somehow their placentas are connected, they could end up tearing themselves away by turning in different directions because in a sense they're competing individuals and they could do different things and move in different directions and that could cause a tearing or rupturing of the umbilical cord if you don't cut it off. And therefore we want to sever it so you don't have that problem. Anything that's said in this parsha of rebuke, it's not the parshiot of Tochecha in the Torah, but the parsha of Tochecha that's said in Yechezkel, that which is rebuke, that Yechezkel's telling, is supposed to tell the people that Hashem did this for you, and you ignored all this goodness that Hashem bestowed upon you, that is something you're allowed to do for a woman who gives birth on Shabbat. What says over here, Malfi. This doesn't come out of the Pesach. These aren't limudim from the Pesach. If it comes in the parshia of rebuke, as Rashi says over here, it's to quarrel with, to make known to someone the misdeed that they did to injure this individual, to make it known to them. So that's what it says. That shows you that tochacha is involved with tsar. There's some pain or difficulty that's associated with that tochacha if you don't do it or if you don't take care of it. So therefore the Chachamim were makil with these items to say that you're allowed to do them on Shabbat because there's no Iser Doraita. And since they involve Tsar, which is what the Tochacha is saying, that if you don't do these things, then there is Tsar, and Hashem did this for you, and you still aren't thankful to that. It's something that we give a dispensation to a woman who gives birth. Shinemar, because it says, the remainder of which might be actually familiar to you from the Haggadah or from a Brit Milah, which it says here, as when it came to your birth, when you were born, was your navel, your umbilical cord wasn't cut. You were not bathed in water to smooth you out. You were not rubbed in salt, nor were you swaddled. No one had enough pity on you to do any of these things that normally we've done for a child and have compassion on them. You were thrown, left lying to waste and rejected in the open field. And I passed by and saw you wallowing in your blood. And I said, you're going to live in spite of your blood. And I said to you, you're going to live in spite of your blood. May that Hashem came and grabbed you, but you see that this is what's normally performed for a baby that's born. And the fact that it wasn't done was upsetting and was dismaying. And therefore Hashem intervened in order to save you. And this is the tochacha to Bnei Israel that despite the fact that Hashem interceded on their behalf to save them, they still did not return the favor and act in a manner that was becoming of someone that was indebted to Akash Baruch for what he did for them. And that's the Gemara explains now. That we help or we facilitate the ability. And was your 
navel not severed or cut, like Rabbi Yossi, you're allowed to cut the umbilical cord on Shabbat. They learn it from a pasuk Sarei Chagana Selar, which is found in Shira Shirim. Ubemayim lo rachatz the mishi. You are not bathed and cleaned in water. Mikanch rochutzim avlad b'Shabbat that you're allowed to rinse off or wash the baby on Shabbat. Veham leach lo hum lachat. And were you not salted? Mikanch mochim avlad b'Shabbat that you let us salt them. So as Rashi explains before that the waters are used to wash off and clean the baby in the mishi latuach lachlik b'saro in order to baste and to smoothen out his skin. And then the salt is put on in order to harden the skin from its softness. Were you not swaddled? And from here, we see that you are allowed to swaddle the baby on Shabbat. As Rashi points out that this is distinct from that which we heard on Kufchaf Gimel, that you're not allowed to be a suve yinoka, that you're not allowed to do or straighten out the limbs of the baby on Shabbat. There, Rav Nachman said it was a sewer. Because here it's only the fufe and Badam Tosvot on Kufkov Gimel Medalif notes that that distinction because earlier back in Bemeisha and our Gemara over here say that you're allowed to wrap or swaddle the baby and put them into a vimple in order to have them be swaddled and held together properly. But Rav Nachman over here who says that the Asuve Yenoka is Asur is something more extreme. That is to straighten out the limbs, to put them in place and to seat the limbs properly, that's not allowed on Shabbat. That's already considered to be too much of a metakin on Shabbat, and therefore Rav Nachman does not permit it on Shabbat. And with that, we finished 18th parak, Hadron Alach, Mifanim.